Welcome to some more great Bible preaching from the pulpit of Capital City Baptist Church in the heart of Austin, Texas. Our prayer is that your relationship with Christ is strengthened and that you are blessed by the time you spend in the Word of God with us today. Acts chapter 10 verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band, called the Italian band. A devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people. And he prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for memorial before God. Now we won't read the entire chapter. So I want you to skip down with me to verse 19. And we'll come back later on in the message and finish reading the verses that we've just skipped. Verse 19, while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise therefore and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius and said, Behold, I am he whom ye seek. What is the cause whereof ye are come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of a good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by an holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear the words of thee. Then called he them in and lodged them. And on the morning Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, Cornelius waited for them and had called together his kinsmen, and near friends. As we've studied the life of Peter, we've noticed in the Gospels a lot of faults and defects and failures. We noticed when he stepped out in the water and began to doubt, and there he is sinking. We noticed the fact that he had argued with the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd actually rebuked Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 16. And then through a series of mistakes, we find him... In the end, at the moment of the crucifixion, he is denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's so amazing. When we get to the book of Acts, we see a totally different person, a man greatly used of God. And I want you to see why this morning. Go with me back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. This is a chapter speaking of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before his ascension, he speaks to the disciples and listen to his words. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. So here's what he tells them. His last words are these. I want you to stay right here, and I want you to wait until this promise has been fulfilled. Now, what was the promise? Go back with me to John 14. Let me remind you, refresh your memory what the promise of the Father was. John chapter 14, we'll start at verse 1. Something interesting happens here as he starts this message. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. Now, on one hand, he's saying, listen, I don't want you to be troubled. I don't want you to be fearful, but I'm leaving. Now, that would disturb us to know that our leader is leaving, especially if that leader is the Messiah. 
And then in the same teaching, he says, I'm leaving. And then he says in chapter 15, go with me to verse 5. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And the disciples are thinking, that's great. You just told us the secret to success. In order to be fruitful, we must abide in you. You must abide in us. There's only one problem. Look what he says in the following statement. For without me, ye can do nothing. So he gives them this teaching and then he gives them a warning. He says, listen, don't try to do anything without me because without me, ye can do nothing. There's only one problem. He had just told them minutes earlier, I'm leaving. So he says, I'm going to be crucified uh, three days later, come out of the grave. I'm going to send into heaven. I am going to leave. And Thomas is the one that speaks up this time instead of Peter. Look, go back to chapter 14. Look what it says in verse 5. Thomas saith unto him, he's disturbed, perturbed. When he asks this question, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? So they're already fretful before he gets to the teaching in verse 5, which is, abide me, and I'm going to abide in you. And that's the way to produce much fruit. And without me, you can't do anything. Now, if he would have left them like that, what a quandary, what a problem, what a heartbreak, what a setback. But in these same verses, he leaves them a promise that is mentioned or referred to in John 16. John 16, verse 7. He tells them, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. Now, can they understand this? They're saying, That's, well, we're supposed to believe you. We're just not believing it. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Here's the promise. Chapter 14, several different times. Go back with me. Keep your finger here. Let's flip back and forth between these chapters. Because back in chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, he said, I'll pray the Father. He will give you another comforter that he may abide with you. Look at the promise. Forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now go back to chapter 16 for a minute. So he says, I'm going to go away. If I go not away, the comforter will not come. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now what is that comforter going to do in verse 8? When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 13, how may when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you in all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that he shall speak, and he will show you things to come. Now, I need you to follow me because we're going to go through a lot of scripture this morning, but I need you to understand the basic and most fundamental reason behind Peter's success and all the results that he saw in his ministry Peter himself was basically the same person. He was growing, he was learning, he was improving, and he was being molded, and Jesus had just invested three and a half years in this man and in his future ministry. But if you look at what God had to work with, the Peter that God had to work with in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you look at Jesus Christ getting ready to ascend into heaven and saying, Peter... Listen, I've given you the keys to the kingdom. What's it say in Matthew 16? That he had been given the keys to the kingdom. I think I would have taken the keys back. 
I think I would have said, listen, after your previous history, watching you fall and watching you make mistakes and seeing at times your willing heart, but your lack of discretion, you denied me three times. Now that alone probably in most of us would have created enough doubt that we would have said, you know what, I probably need to stick around and invest some more time in a different leader, a more reliable person, someone with a few better traits. Now, what was it that transformed this man and then in the book of Acts made him such a successful leader in the early church? You know what it was? The power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, go back with me to Acts chapter 2 as we look through his life because in Acts chapter 1, he's heading up a prayer meeting. There's 120 people there in the upper room and they are doing exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ commanded them to do. They are tearing in Jerusalem, praying for the coming and the power of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. They were all, what's it saying? Filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, here's what we do not emphasize enough. When Peter preached that day, there are thousands of people present. We understand there were 3,000 that responded, that trusted Christ as Savior, were baptized and added to the church. But what we underemphasize is the fact, not just was he indwelt with the Holy Ghost, but he is filled and he is operating underneath the power of the Holy Ghost. What's it say in Acts 1.8? But ye shall receive what? Power. Can you imagine Peter trying to preach Pentecost? Thousands of souls, thousands of interruptions in the open air. Here's Peter, a man with very little preaching experience. A man who was always accustomed to taking a back seat to the Lord Jesus Christ. A man who was accustomed to listening to the prince of preachers. And now he's being forced to the forefront. Now he must preach. That's a lot of responsibility on his shoulders. And if he would have gotten up, I can't even imagine getting up in these circumstances, taking the platform, getting behind the pulpit, preaching to this size of a crowd without the filling of the Holy Spirit. What a desperate moment that would be. Can you imagine this whole story would be totally different if the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen upon Peter and filled Peter and used Peter and enabled Peter and empowered Peter if he would have gotten up in his own strength. Now, I've lamented a lot of times my own lack of ability and talents. I regret the fact that I don't have any special talent it didn't come in my DNA. I can't sing. I wasn't a natural born leader. I don't have natural preaching ability. But here's what I do know. I'm glad that uh, the ministry doesn't depend upon me or my talents or my abilities. I thank God that it all depends upon the Spirit of God. Now, how foolish is it as Christians to live, to act, to think, to walk, and to talk in our own power, thinking we're going to do the work of God. Now, now, think about that for a minute. We are going to do the work of God. Now, how in the world are you going to accomplish that? How in the world are you going to be successful without the Spirit of God the power of God enabling you to do that work. It's impossible. This day would have come out very differently had he had gotten up in his own power, had the Spirit have not fallen on him. If God wouldn't have kept his promise and sent the Comforter, what a disaster this day would have been. Look what it says in chapter 4. 
Now, in chapter 4, we speak of the day of Pentecost, but actually, we see something even greater than that moment. Peter preaches again after the healing of the late man, 5,000 men. I can't even imagine that. 5,000 men respond, fall on their faces, trust Christ is their Savior. Now, why did that happen? Look in verse 8, we find the key. Then Peter, what? Filled with the Holy Ghost. Peter knew in his heart and mind, this has nothing to do with me. This is not my preaching skills. This isn't my oratory ability. This isn't the fact that I went through three and a half years in the Institute of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes back in chapter 3. Look what he says when he healed the lame man. And they were marveling at Peter, marveling at his power. In verse 12, when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? Now, Peter was smart enough to say, listen, this has nothing to do with me. Peter was understanding that teaching found back in John 14, 15, and 16 where Christ had told him, I'm leaving and without me, you can do nothing, absolutely nothing. You're supposed to be a Christian. You're supposed to live a godly life. You're supposed to do the work of God. But without me, you can do absolutely nothing. But I'm going to send you a comforter. And when they prayed, when they tarried there in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit fell and the place was shaken and we see Pentecost and then we see 5,000 souls saved. Now I want you to skip forward all the way that Acts chapter 10, because we're going to see God using Peter here once again, filled with the power and the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to think for just a minute. He comes to the house of Cornelius, and in every single chapter, here's what we see. The moving of the Holy Spirit, although we call it the Acts of the Apostles, this book is really the Acts of the Apostles under the power of or enabled by the Holy Spirit. So here's Peter in Acts chapter 10. And God wants to open up the door to the Gentiles. And here's a seeking sinner, a Gentile, a centurion, a very important man in society. Now I want you to think about his condition for a minute. Look what the Bible says in verse 22. They said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one that feareth God and is of a good report among all the nation of the Jews. Now, how unusual is this? Because he was a Roman centurion. That'd be the equivalent of a captain in our army. This is a high-ranking officer. You got to understand at this time, the Romans are ruling over the Jews. These people weren't friends with each other. They weren't eating together. And the Romans were polytheists. And they had many gods and many goddesses. And here's what you can understand about a man in this position. When they were going to battle, Mars was their greatest god, the one that was supposed to give them victory in battle. And they would actually take around these shrines and gods and set them up before they went into battle. And who would act as the priest at that moment? The captains, the centurions. And he's saying, no, we're not going to do that. I believe in Jehovah God. Now, did that make him say No. Did that make him a Christian? No. It made him devout in his faith. Now, here's something more amazing. Go back to verse 2. Look what it says about him. One that feared God with all his house. Even being a military man, he was concerned about his family and concerned about the spiritual welfare of his house. We don't have enough men 
in that condition in this day and age. Regrettably, normally it's mama trying to uh, run around and be the spiritual leader in the home. But he was concerned about the spiritual welfare of his house. And look what it says. Obviously, he wasn't Baptist because he gave much alms and prayed to God always. Now, think about this for a minute. Because as a Gentile, he couldn't worship in the temple in Jerusalem with the rest of the Jews. That didn't keep him from praying. That didn't keep him from giving. That didn't keep him from being a fervent, devout person. Now, think about this for a minute. You know people like that. Unsaved, but very religious. Unsaved, but good at heart. Unsaved with high moral character. Now you, with all your tactics, you can at least go with the Word of God and open up the Bible and show to them what God's Word says. The only problem was, Peter couldn't go there, open up Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and say, For by grace are ye saved through faith. It's not of works. Lest any man should boast. He can open up Titus 3, 5 and say, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, those books weren't written. Wouldn't it have been nice if he could have opened up Romans 3, 20 and said, for by the deeds of the law should no flesh be justified in his sight? He couldn't do that. Now let me ask you this. Imagine Peter going to the house of Cornelius and trying to witness to this morally righteous man, upper society, and convincing him that he was a lost sinner, hell-bound, in need of a Savior. Wouldn't you love to try to do that without the Holy Spirit? Now, here's what we forget. The success that we found, and listen, it was in Acts chapter 8, we see the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's reading, and God not only prepares the heart of the sinner, but the heart of the soul winner, and he connects the two. And out there in the middle of the desert, Philip, who was uh, many miles away, the Holy Spirit connected the two, and that's why he got saved. In the next chapter, Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul, and once again, the Holy Spirit is busy working, and he softens the heart of the sinner, and he prepares the heart of Ananias, and the two get together, and they go through some discipleship, and Saul gets baptized. Now in Acts chapter 10, we see once again, the Holy Spirit preparing the heart of the sinner, Cornelius. But think about everything that we read in the book of Acts. Would any of that have happened without the working of the Holy Spirit? Then why is it in 2012 with this example, with the written word of God, that we are trying to function without the enabling, without the power of the Holy Ghost? Here's what I've seen pastoring. I've watched Christians in Christianity and they get saved and they get baptized and they get discipled and they come to church and they learn and they memorize scripture and they become faithful and they get involved in a ministry. But all the while, we've forgotten the Holy Spirit. We're trying to function without the power and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And every day becomes mundane. And here's what you do even as a Christian. You just simply try to survive another day. Because you don't understand how the Holy Spirit wants to use you on Monday. Now go back for a minute, whether it's the Ethiopian eunuch or whether it was Saul of Tarsus or whether it was a Philippian cheller or whether uh, it was Cornelius. The Holy Spirit's not waiting for Sunday morning, 10 o'clock to do a work. The Holy Spirit says, I can work on Monday. I'm not limited to the day of the week. 
I would like to do something on Tuesday. I would like to save a soul on Wednesday. I'd like to encourage a brother on Thursday. I would like to rescue someone from the torments of hell on Friday. The only problem is we get in tune with the Holy Spirit occasionally, maybe during a service, maybe during an invitation, but throughout the rest of the week when he wants to prepare a sinner and prepare a soul winner and hook the two up and see a miracle happen, we're living totally controlled by, operated by the power of the flesh. Now listen, if you live without the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to live a very mundane and miserable life because you and your flesh are not capable of doing any good thing. Listen, how many people have you led to Christ with your tremendous voice? I mean, you just start singing and they, they just flood the aisles. Lay down at the altar weeping and crying and brokenhearted and begging God for mercy. I'm not making fun of someone's voice. I'm telling you, whatever you do, you better do under the power of the Holy Spirit because ultimately your talent, your ability, whatever you have to offer God is not going to change hearts. Now think about this for a minute. When we're talking about salvation, we're talking about Someone in order to enter into the kingdom is going to have a change of heart, a breaking of their will. Now, what argument do you have? What ability do you have to change someone's heart or break their will? You know how powerless you are. You can't even win an argument with your wife. You have a 16-year-old that you created in your own image. You reared, you fed, you developed, you taught, you instructed. And you still can't get him to do what you want him to do or think the way you want him to think. But you go to a lost world that's blinded by sin with the hope that one of them gets born again. If you don't go with the Holy Spirit, give it up. If you don't teach with the power of the Holy Spirit, if you don't preach with the power of the Holy Spirit, if you don't open up this book with the power of the Holy Ghost, whatever you do is going to be frustrating because you've convinced yourself, I'm going to do the work of God and the work of God's only going to frustrate you because Christ said, before you ever go, before we ever really get this church off the ground, before things start happening, you better understand the most basic principle of Christianity, which is this, without me, you can do nothing. So you know what the majority of Christians are doing? Nothing. And we wonder why when Christ has given us a reason. He said, without me, that's impossible. Now, here's what happens. Christ said, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit came. We see in the book of Acts. He is moving. And here in Acts chapter 10, he's already prepared the heart of Cornelius. Now, here's what's amazing. I would love for this to happen. But when Peter showed up, not only was Cornelius ready, but he had gathered his friends and kinsmen, and they were waiting, prepared, saying, Peter, preach to us the truth. There's only one problem. Oftentimes, the Holy Spirit has an easier time preparing the heart of the sinner than he does preparing the heart of the soul winner. So before we move on, let's go back to verse 9. Now, God's timing is always perfect. He has moved in the heart of Cornelius. And on the morrow, the next day, as they went on the journey, drew nigh to the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray. He's going through the motions. Now, let me ask you this. How many Christians in here, I thank God for this church, and I thank God for this people, and I thank God for your commitment. 
Here's what I simply want to ask you. Peter was a committed man, but a lot of times we just get into a place where we're going through the motions. And we look back and say, you know what? This hasn't been a very profitable year. We're looking at all the work that's been invested, all the time, all the effort. And we say, after I've invested all of this, what really did I accomplish? And here's Peter going through the motions, and he goes up to the housetop to pray. The sixth hour, and he becomes very hungry, and he would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. How many of you have been involved in the work of God, and you've fallen into a trance? How many of you have went to a prayer meeting, and you fell into a trance? You're there. Words are coming out of your mouth, but you're in a trance. How many of you ever went soul winning, and you got out on the street, and you had tracks in your hands, and you're knocking doors, but you were doing it in a trance? How many of you have ever sat in a church service? Some of you were there this morning. You're there. Your Bible's open. You read the, the text this morning. You're listening to the preacher, but you've got one eye on me and the other eye is somewhere. I don't know if it's the cross or the... What, what are you guys looking at back there? Something. You've been focused on something back there for about 15 minutes. You know what happened? You're in a trance. And too often... We, we just go through the motions. We get in the habit of doing the things of God, participating in the work of God, because we're high character. We've made a commitment. I'm going to be there for prayer. I'm going to be there for soul winning. I'm going to be there for every service. I'm going to do exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to work in that ministry. I'm going to be faithful. I want people to know that they can count on me. The only problem is you're going to live very tired and frustrated and discouraged because what you are trying to do is accomplishing nothing because Christ already forewarned you and said, without me, you can do nothing. And here's what Peter said. I want something to happen. And in the book of Acts, we find things are happening. But those things are happening because the Holy Spirit is working because men are submitted and living filled. And as a result, the Holy Spirit is working and moving through them. And here's Peter. Listen, did you realize that Peter's going to the Samaritans? That's a huge step. Now, I don't want to go back and re-explain everything that we've already taught in the past few months, but there was a great division between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was a great division just between the Jews and the Samaritans. So for Peter to take this step simply to go to Joppa, simply to be preaching and reaching out to the Samaritans was a huge step. But now he's going to have to go another step and that's to go into the house of a Gentile. So the sheet comes down, and three times God says, rise and eat. And Peter's response in verse 14 is, not so, Lord. I have never, ever eaten at Rudy's. Now, I don't know what Peter's problem is, but if this were Dr. Crenshaw and myself, and the sheet came down, barbecue ribs, yeah, I think we're in. I don't think I need to debate God's will on that one. I think I just heard the call. I want to say, Lord, you forgot the barbecue sauce, but other than that, I think we're set. Give me a fork and I'll be wherever you send me. But here's what had happened. Peter was going to have to eliminate some prejudice here. Peter was going to have to step outside of his comfort zone. And here's what he did, and here's why God blessed him when the Holy Spirit says, move in verse 19. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men that seek thee, arise therefore and get thee down, go with them, doubting nothing. He goes to the house of Cornelius. He preaches, filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. Look what it says in verse 43. 
to give all the prophets, verses, we won't read all the verses, but verse 37, he starts explaining who Jesus Christ is. Now remember this, when we read John 16, verses 7 and 8, what did the Bible say that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, would do? He would reprove the world of righteousness, sin, and judgment to come. So Peter already had a foundation to build upon because the Holy Spirit had been working in the heart of Cornelius. So when he comes and he introduces him to the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives him the invitation in verse 43, whosoever believeth in him, in Jesus Christ, shall receive remission of sins. The family gets born again. The kinsmen, everyone present, as far as we know, as far as the text tells us, gets saved. A drastic change takes place. And suddenly a Jew and a Roman officer want to spend time together. Look what it says in verse 48. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord the same day. That's called new birth. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. That's called discipleship. So imagine this. Here's what the law cannot do. The law can force you to change. The law can't give you the desire to change. That's what Jesus did. He said, listen, you're trying to keep the law and you're trying to do all the right things, but you need to get born again. I know that you want to do right, and I know you want to live right, and I want to, hey, you want to be the right kind of father and the right kind of husband, the right kind of person, the right kind of soldier, the right kind of leader. But that starts at the new birth. And except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when he had explained these things, he said, you know what you need? Remission of sins. And he said, I think I, I'll take that. I think I need that. Uh, that's someone that I want to accept. That's something I want to do. And him and his family got on their knees. That day they got born again. And as soon as that happened, there was a change of heart. Now listen, here's what the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit changed the thinking of both these men because he took a Roman soldier and a Jewish preacher and so drastically changed them that they want to spend days together. That's unheard of. That's the kind of salvation that God offers. That's the kind of change that the Holy Spirit produces. I need you to see what's happening here. I need you to see or think about these words, without me, you can do nothing. How many are born again? How many of you, you know I like salvation experiences and I like leading people to Christ and you can almost see the transformation taking place. The light comes on. I've seen people pray with their eyes closed. I've seen people pray with their eyes open. I've seen people pray standing up, kneeling down, sitting in a chair. I've seen people pray in the church house and in their own home in all kinds of conditions. But the majority of the time when someone prays, trust Christ as their Savior, there is a facial reaction. And you can see a difference in their eyes. The light comes on. The Holy Spirit and the day and age of grace, thankfully that's the day and age we live in, takes up residence. He indwells anybody that receives Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, the only problem is the Christian thinks, well, that's good enough. With his indwelling, I'm okay, I'm set, I'm ready to go. There's only one problem with that. In order to be empowered, in order to be enabled, you need to be filled, and that's a daily thing. Filled means you have to be emptied of self in order for him to take total control. 
Now, here's what he wants to do. He wants to change you. He wants to empower you. He wants to use you in a greater way than you are being used. Now, think about this collection of people here this morning. Think about all the talents, the abilities, your background, your defects, your faults, your uh, problems, your insecurities. Put all of that together in the pot. Now, this church is supposed to fulfill the Great Commission. This church is supposed to do something for God. This church is supposed to turn Austin upside down for Jesus Christ. So we put together all of our knowledge and all of our strengths and all of our abilities. Now, let's go turn Austin upside down for Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know why I just took your breath away? We know there's absolutely nothing that we have to offer in and of ourselves. So why in the world would we try so hard? Why in the world would we try so often to accomplish something in the work of God without the Spirit of God? Why in the world would we teach a class? Why in the world would we knock on a door? Why in the world would we do something that's involved in the work of God and forget or put aside the Holy Spirit of God thinking that we can actually be successful in our accomplishments while doing something in the flesh? When Christ has already said, without me, you can do nothing. Go with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Galatians 5, 22. Now, here's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. The Holy Spirit wants to help you out. And the Holy Spirit knows you're supposed to be doing the work of God. And the first problem that he'd like to solve is the indifference that's found in Christianity. Here's the first problem the Holy Spirit wants to solve because the average Christian lives so indifferent. Now think about our indifference in the house of God. These are our brothers in Christ. And how cold we so often can be, how calloused, how hard, how indifferent on a daily basis, inconsiderate in the things that we do, the things that we say, even our facial expressions, the lack of energy we show, when we're supposed to demonstrate love. And here's what the Holy Spirit says. Listen, if you go back and take a look at the life of Peter in the Gospels, do you remember in Mark chapter 6, here's the feeding of the 5,000? That's just men. So there's a crowd there. You know if there's 5,000 men, there's 5,000 women. And if there's 5,000 women, there's what? Yeah, about 10 or 15,000 children. So this is a big crowd. And they've been listening to Christ preach all day and they're hungry. And the Bible says Christ was moved with compassion. And what's Peter and the rest of the disciples? What do they say? I just sent them away. They'll make it. They'll be okay. Don't worry about them. Do you remember Matthew? I believe it's in chapter 19 um, where the children come and some of the parents simply want Jesus Christ to pray over them or pray with them. And how do Peter and the disciples respond? Get away. Hey, hey, he's a busy man. He can't pray with you. Jesus, pray with you? What are you thinking? That's called indifference. Now, why the drastic change in the book of Acts where everywhere he goes, I mean, even when he's headed up to the temple to pray, he passes by the lame man and he takes a moment with him. You see all that indifference gone. You know who does that? You know who solves that problem? The Holy Spirit. That's called the fruit of the Spirit. Look what it said in Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That doesn't just mean love for God. That means a love for people. That means love for a lost and dying world. 
Now, let me ask you this. How in the world can we say that we're filled with the Spirit? His main concern is what? Convicting the world of righteousness, sin, and judgment to come. So how can we say we're filled with the Spirit? And on Monday, lost souls don't even cross our mind. Tuesday, the people we work with, the people we see, the people we do business with, our neighbors, those we come into contact with, the thought that they are going to hell, they're going to burn forever unless they repent of their sins, doesn't even cross their, our minds. And on Wednesday, Thursday, no interest in visitation. Some of you haven't had a track in your pocket in two years. And that indifference has so permeated Christianity that now we have to have a special event with a large meal and a dynamic preacher to get you to lift a finger and make a phone call to bring someone not to witness, not to share with them the gospel, but simply to get you to invite them to church. It's hard to debate with Scripture and say, that is a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit. Because here's what the Holy Spirit will do. He will knock off the indifference. And suddenly you see that apathetic, pathetic apostle named Peter in the Gospels, suddenly in the book of Acts, concerned with every soul that crosses his path. Let me say the second problem the Holy Spirit wants to solve is incompetence. Now, don't look at me like that. Some of you thought, what are you doing, preacher? You're calling me incompetent? I'm calling all of us incompetent. Think about Peter for just a minute. I want you to do a study on the life of Peter, even though you've heard these sermons over the past few months. Do a study, a personal study on the life of Peter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and tell me what he's competent to do. I mean, the couple times we see him fishing, he can't catch anything. If it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ saying, hey, Throw the nets on the other side of the boat. Go out into the deep. He wouldn't have caught anything. His two best days of fishing were the days when he had got nothing. He's cleaning his nets, and Lord Jesus Christ says, hey, let's try something else. He's taking advice from someone that doesn't even fish. Okay, the only time that we see Peter actually catching a fish on his own, that's when Lord Jesus Christ said, hey, take a line and a hook and throw it in the water and pull a coin out of the mouth. Okay, so if we look simply at his career and uh, his career success, we'd say this man is very incompetent. What about when he was commissioned and he was sent out and the Lord Jesus Christ said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out, heal the sick, and cast out demons and preach the gospel. And he goes out and uh, here's this little demon-filled child. Probably found him in a Baptist nursery. <laughs> he says, go out, go forth. And the, the little devil, you know, starts biting him in the leg and flinging himself around. And he comes back discouraged and they bring the child and they said, Christ, what, what happened? We simply could not do what you told us to do. We couldn't perform the command. Peter, walk on the water. And he sinks. Peter says, I'm a man of courage. Listen, I will die for thee. Are you one of his followers? The little girl asks to Peter, the man of courage. And he says, what? Get away from me, girl. I don't know that man. Okay, you tell me where in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John do you find Peter competent to do anything? Willing, yes. Competent, no. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. We have the same command as Peter. 
go out, preach the gospel, reach the lost, do the work of God. Now I want to see someone raise their hand and say, Preacher, I want to give you a list of all my talents and abilities that make me competent to reach a lost and dying world. Now here's what the Holy Spirit will do. The Holy Spirit will change you and take you from incompetence to competence. I, folks, there is no way, listen, the only thing that keeps me going, the only thing that keeps me charged, the only thing that keeps me motivated for the Crenshaw is knowing when I go to that pulpit, I have a Holy Spirit that goes with me. And the only thing that keeps me charged up goes, someone is known I have a Holy Spirit that goes with me. And the only thing that keeps me doing what I'm doing, if I didn't have a Holy Spirit, I'd shut these doors, I'd fold up my Bible, I'd go home and say, you know what, you guys try to do the work, I already know I am incapable. But here's what the Holy Spirit did with this incompetent man made empowering him, enabling him, he made him competent to do the work of God. Now, here's what you need to do. Instead of being discouraged, instead of being frustrated, instead of saying, I simply can't do what I'm supposed to do, you need to say, if I got filled, I could be competent. Without the filling, yes, you have the indwelling. The indwelling doesn't make you competent. The filling makes you competent. Peter wasn't competent to preach the day of Pentecost. Peter wasn't competent to raise that man, the lame man. Peter wasn't competent to do the work of God or to walk out of prison or to lead the early church. Peter wasn't competent to even lead Cornelius and his family to Christ. But it was the filling of the Holy Spirit that made him competent. And here's why we live so incompetent and so frustrated. We're trying to actually do it without the filling of the Holy Spirit. How crazy is that thought? Now, I want you to see the last thing, and we're done. Go back with me to Acts chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want to read you a verse. Because even in his witness to Cornelius, here's what Peter says about Christ, the Messiah. How God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost. And with power. Peter even said, I know the only way anything is done on a spiritual level is through the power of the Holy Ghost. Acts 1.8. But ye shall receive what? Now, here's another problem the Holy Spirit wants to solve. He wants to change us from powerless Christians in Christianity. That's the change you see in Peter from the Gospels to the book of Acts. You suddenly see a powerful Christian. Now, folks, we're talking about a time frame here of a few months, 60 days, 60, 90 days. How in the world do you go from the Peter of the Gospels to the Peter of the book of Acts? Ye shall receive power when? After that, the Holy Ghost. What does Zechariah 4, 6 say? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. How many of you have ever read the, whole te the Old Testament? and saw the mighty deeds and acts done in the Old Testament, and then you noticed, whether it was David, or the kings, or Saul, or the judges, or Samson, each and every time, get in anything mighty that was done, it said the Holy Spirit of God came upon him. We have a few items up here on the platform that represent the church. Now I want you to think for a minute. There's a little bit of beauty. There's a little bit of ability. We have a stereo and a toaster, an iron, a lamp, electric candle, clock, and a CD player. And we have these words of Christ, without me, you can do nothing. Here's what Peter did. 
Peter understood this teaching and said, listen, I'm going to get plugged into the power source. Because I understand if I'm supposed to do the work of God, there's no way I want to do it without the help of God, without the spirit of God. Now I want you to think for just a minute. These may be beautiful items, but they're all useless until they're plugged into the power source. Unless you say that's a beautiful toaster, and I believe in the brand, and I think some beam is top of the line, and that's brand new. Uh, so let's bring some bread up here, and you can stick it in there for 30 days and 30 nights. And the only thing that's going to harden your toast is the fact that it's growing stale. It will not be heated under any condition. I wouldn't eat that toast, and here's what Christians are trying to do in the church house, looking good, and that's it, nothing more. This, without being plugged in, can do absolutely nothing. You say, that's worthless. No, it's not worthless. It's useless until it's plugged in this power source. Well, I want a toast that works. It works. It's got to be plugged into the power source. You can push this button and say, I'm bringing this back. This piece of junk, I paid $200 for it, and it's never worked. Good night. Show me something, sell me something that'll play a little bit of music. It will. No, it won't. I've pushed every button. Listen, there, there's a DVD right there. I closed it. I hit the buttons. I've hit play. I've turned the knobs. I've turned up the volume. The speakers are, are connected to the, the main device. What in the world is going on? Without me, you can do absolutely nothing. I want to be a bright and shining light to this world. Yeah, put in a new bulb, change the wattage, connect all the wires, repaint the frame. You know what you have? Nothing. I can't even imagine what the God of the universe thinks of today's Christianity when this is what we have. Now, here's what Peter did not have the day of Pentecost. He didn't have a gorgeous facility. He didn't have a developed orchestra. He didn't have a TV station out there throwing out the advertisement. He didn't have nice pews to sit on, a beautiful baptistry. He had nothing in his favor. They didn't have a Christian school. They didn't have a junior church. But despite the lack of programs, something powerful happened. Peter got plugged in in Acts 1 and never got unplugged. And here's Christianity in this day and age. Pastor, I'm just not seeing things that happen in my marriage. Pastor, my class hasn't changed. My kids aren't growing. Pastor, you told me this works, and I've been doing this for four years. You know the best thing you did? Just get plugged in, and in four minutes, your perspective's going to change. Now, here's what you could do. What if the next time you went to that class, you got down on your knees, and you tarried in Jerusalem till the Spirit fell? You said, God... I don't want to go before my husband with this argument. I don't want to teach that class. I don't want to knock on a door with this track unless I know I am filled. Because I understand any argument I have, any logic that I use is worthless and wasted energy. You look good. There's only one problem. Why in the world would we try so hard repeatedly knowing it doesn't work but we're going to do it again tomorrow and we're going to do it again next Sunday Peter got plugged in in Acts 1 and never got unplugged 
And here's what happens. When you see what the Holy Spirit can do through you, you say, why in the world would I want to go back to doing things on my own? That is wasted time and energy. We certainly hope that you've enjoyed this message today, but more importantly, we hope that the Lord has challenged you in some way to grow in your Christian life. For more information about our church, including directions and times of services, please visit our website at www.capitalcitybaptist.org.